Now see, we're sitting down here, ready to negotiate. <laughs> You've already given up your shit. I'm still a mystery to you. But I know exactly where your white ass is coming from. See, if I ask if you want some dinner, and you grab the egg roll and start a try down, I say to myself, this motherfucker, he's carrying on like he ain't got a care in the world, and who knows? Maybe he don't. Maybe this fool's such a bad motherfucker. He don't got to worry about nothing. He just sit down, watch my motherfucking TV. See? <laughs> you ain't even sat down yet. And that TV over there, since you've been in the room, is a room where the breasts is hanging out. You ain't even bothered to look. You just been clacking me. I know I'm pretty, but I ain't as pretty as a couple of titties. <laughs> Ooh wee! This shop fits. What you are about to hear is a labor of love. Our love is for the music, and the music is for the people. We at Rockstrex10 and CNJRadio.com have always recommended that any music we promote on our shows be legally purchased, downloaded, and or streamed. We feel this way not only for our network of shows, but for all music-based shows. By supporting the artist in this way, more music can be created and the industry as a whole can prosper. The music is owned by their respective labels, or hopefully by the artists themselves. This broadcast is owned by cnjradio.com. Our only mission is to promote the music we love and promote the legal purchase of it. Enjoy the show and turn it up. Welcome to Rock Welcome to Rock Strikes 10, the show guaranteed to always give you 10 songs, no more, no less. My name is Joey. want to thank everybody for tuning into the show here today, especially if you're doing it at the central station of cnjradio.com. Okay, yes, welcome to the very last entry in our big, huge, super spectacular retrospective dealing with the year 1993. So, of course, it is time for the last entry of the top 60 albums of 1993. Yes, the top 10 albums of 1993, the big ones. And it's fitting that I say big ones, actually, and I didn't set myself up for this, but let's just get to it. Coming in at number 10 right here. To me, yes, the album, very important, but this also kind of represents the overall thing and my musical nostalgia for anything 1993, because one of the biggest things going still at this point was Aerosmith and this is where I don't feel so bad about being born too late in a sense I always say that man if I'd have just been born 25 years earlier I could have gotten in on all this fun stuff but at the same time I've been trying to focus on the positives about my age and where I'm at with my fandom my overall favorite bands and with that comes with not having to hate on anything that Aerosmith put out after 1983. So I was all about Get a Grip in 1993. I went to both legs of the tour, which was the first time I ever went to see the same tour twice. So that was a big deal. 
And looking back on it, it's pretty amazing to me that these dudes that are like in their early to mid 40s are really getting over with the youth of America. I think maybe a couple of things might have had to do with that. Obviously, just whatever it is, management and the entire industry putting them in a good position of good standing. Even the Days to Confuse thing, I think, helped Aerosmith just a little extra in 93. Because what was the big main goal by the end of the movie was going to get Aerosmith tickets. Top priority of the summer, man. We we said that line when we went to get Aerosmith tickets when we were in high school. Same exact thing. The fact that they got the stamp of approval. Everybody from Beavis and Butthead to Saturday Night Live. I mean, they were everywhere. And is Get a Grip a perfect album? No, it's not a perfect album. Even at the time when it was out, I would swear to you on my collection that I was like, there's too many goddamn ballads on this record. So it's not a perfect album, but it's great where it counts if you're a fan of the rockers that they put out still to this point. And this is something that from this album and beyond, you gotta have to look at Aerosmith albums with that kind of, okay, well, let's focus on the good stuff. So I could still be a fan. So Get a Grip squeaks in here into the top 10 based on a lot of nostalgia. But at the same time, how I ranked them, they did really well and scored really well here on my Rock and Rank scoring system. Ballads aside, I would say the first one we were subjected to crying is the best of the three. But maybe amazing. I don't know. I just There's ballad fatigue by the end of this record. But once again, the heavy rockers, I'm here for it. And one of those things where the what could have been there were a lot of heavy rock tracks that got cut off the record in favor for these type of songs. So if Aerosmith had had their way, there'd probably be like one ballad and a few extra rockers on it. But hey, we could even have a mid-tempo one like Deuces Are Wild on this record and stuff like Can't Stop Messing and Don't Stop and stuff like that. And even Head First, which is a jam. Really like Head First a lot. But fantasy booking aside, all the ingredients that was brought into the album Pump was pretty much back here. Bruce Fairbairn back on the board here. And I think maybe for the first time, Brendan O'Brien mixing for him. So the album sounds tremendous. It's a stellar production. And I did always appreciate the fact from a musician point of view, Bruce Fairbairn being a musician and being a guy actually knows how to play something, he plays the trumpet as far as I know, because he plays actual trumpet in the horn section on these Aerosmith albums. But I got to think, since he helped work on Slippery When Wet, and you know how embarrassing those horns sound on the keyboards. If they were going to go horns, they should have used a live horn section, and they didn't. So I like that Bruce righted that wrong from Little Mountain Studios and brought in real horns when it came time to do Aerosmith records. So good for you, Bruce. Rest in peace. But getting to the song here, getting to the music, had a lot of ways I could have gone on this one. Of course, kicking off a show, Eat the Rich would have been very appropriate, and I love Eat the Rich. I've seen many an Aerosmith show where they open with that, even past that tour. I actually really like Flesh a lot. I like Gotta Love It quite a bit. But I'm going to go with this one right here. This song was actually later covered by a big Aerosmith fan. I think later on in the year, by the end of the year, he had had his own hit with it. And that would be Garth Brooks, who's a card-carrying rock guy. But yes, really dig this song, a highlight of Get a Grip. We're going to kick things off here with Fever.
Kicking off the show here today and coming in at number 10 on the top 10 albums of 1993 countdown right here from the overall 60, the album that won the Metal Edge Award for Album of the Year, Get a Grip by Aerosmith right there. I just stumbled upon that actually on the wiki. I should know that offhand just being a huge Metal Edge guy, but what I was looking up originally was to see if they actually won Grammys for this album. And they did. They won Grammys two years in a row for two different songs. So 93 they won for Living on the Edge, and 94 they won for Crazy for Best Rock Performance. And that actually ties in to album number nine right here. What's going on here? Respectability on Rock Strikes 10 with freaking Grammy winners. But I remember watching the night of the Grammys when this lady was winning awards, and I was rooting for her. I was there for her, and definitely a big, big booster of the first three albums of this lady's catalog right here. Sheryl Crow, yes. Sheryl Crow comes in at number nine here with her debut album, Tuesday Night Music Club. Scoff if you want, but if you've never thrown down on this record or her self-titled second album or Globe Sessions, these are quality rock albums. Great writing, great bunch of musicians heading up. And yeah, so hands down, slam, there's the domino. The first three Sheryl Crow records are excellent. When I started doing the albums here, the assessment for 93, I was very curious to see where Tuesday Night Music Club would have ended up because I knew it was going to be up there somewhere. But it comes in at number nine here on the countdown. And I thought this album actually won Album of the Year at the Grammys. It turned out that not only did it not win, it didn't even fucking get nominated even though Cheryl was nominated for like every other thing that year, and she won a lot of awards. She won the the Jinxie Best New Artist Grammy, and I think she won the the Record or Song Award or whatever the fuck it is called for All I Want to Do. And I, I'm guilty of not having seen the documentary still. I need to see it because it's been out for a couple of years. But from my memory of it, just going straight off my memory, which is probably the better idea to do for a personal show, is... I remember this record coming out and there were some other singles out for it and it didn't take off. And then all of a sudden some radio stations apparently started playing all I want to do, or it was like the hell Mary, Hey, let's just put this out and see what happens kind of single. And it took off like hell. It took off so much. I mean, of course the album started selling like crazy. The video and the song was everywhere for all I want to do. So then subsequently the failed singles got re-released again (laughs) as official singles for the second time. So that's kind of interesting. But I got to say, I'm really glad they did that because these are songs that definitely deserved a second look at the time. And unfortunately, they didn't really do anything. It's weird how the other singles didn't do all that great for the rest of the album, despite it being a strong selling album. But I think people that got it at least recognize that most of these songs were really, really good. So I actually struggled with some of these other singles as to what to play here on the show because I really love Run Baby Run. That one always gets a charge out of me, but for me, ever since I bought the record, it's always been about this song. Personal favorite also goes to the Nana song, but I'm going with this one right here. This one's definitely, of course, more personable, and it's just a beautiful song. And it's one of those things where a song can be beautiful while it's talking about depressing things. And I'm just assuming that the song title was at least inspired by the book uh, because it seems to make sense timeline-wise. But here you go. To represent the number nine album, Tuesday Night Music Club, this is Cheryl Crow with the great Leaving Las Vegas.
There you have it. My 93 crush right there. Cheryl Crow with Leave Me Las Vegas from Tuesday Night Music Club, her debut album. Two things, since I went ahead and just got real candid like that. General attractiveness is definitely just window dressing, in my opinion. I saw her live on the Globe Sessions tour finally, and I think she played like five or six instruments that night, like really, really well. This wasn't even just like put a guitar in Madonna's hand and have her strum a chord. The lady can play any essential ingredient you need to make a rock album, so I'm big on that. So there you have it. That's also how I know that Michael Jackson um, was insane, because that guy toured the world with Sheryl Crow, sang a love ballad with her every single night of the tour, and nothing happened. So that's all I need to know. Okay, let's move on, actually. <laughs> let's go to number eight. I'm leaving all that in. Fuck it. Okay, coming in at number eight, something completely different. This band out of New York City. As far as my taste goes, and I, I will say full confession, I'm embarrassed that I wasn't a fan of this band from Jump Street. I was definitely not as cool as I looked back then. And I, I really need to shake a few people that were in charge of keeping me somehow cool, or at least keeping my musical taste cool, because at no point was I ever given a copy of this record and been like, here you go, this thing rules. That's all I would have needed in 1993. But I had to figure it out on my own literally 30 years later, basically, with this band right here, Quicksand. Man, oh man. Giving a, an equal part of firing of the brain that likes Anthrax but also likes Fugazi. And that's something I'd put on a sticker for them. It's like Anthrax beats Fugazi for me. And if not completely stylistically, uh, musically the same as those bands, it's the mentality of those bands. So I really, really responded to these quicksand records that I'm finally getting to listen to. And I, I, fine, it's my idea. Let it be. But man, if you like heavy music and you have not heard quicksand, you got to get on them. No better than to go with their debut album right here called Slip. Damn near 40 minutes of pure rock fury. Just a nice, nice attitude that goes along with it. I really, really dig this band. I'm anxious to hear the rest of their stuff as far as like where they're going to end up on these countdowns. But for now, I'm just going to listen to Slip over and over again like a crazy person. So come along with me. And here's a song hopefully to get you enticed to do the same. This is Freezing Process.
Okay, yes, there you have it. The fourth official single from Slip by Quicksand. That was Freezing Process. I, I giggle at the idea of there being singles off of this record for something that's not a hit record. So I was just like, were they on a major label here? Like, why the singles? Just If you're on a indie label, you just send the CD off to all the college stations that you can get a hold of through those musical yellow pages. That used to be a thing. Anyway, but... Yeah, I was like, I found out they were on Polydor. Shame on you, Polydor. How do you not get this band over in the early 90s when grunge and heavier type metal bands are taking off? How dare you not get this band going? My God. And I could say the same thing about Atlantic Records and this next band right here. Although I get it. I understand why this band wasn't a mainstream success. They had their name in the mouths of mainstream artists at the time, of course, specifically and most famously Nirvana. But it just wasn't in the cards for the Melvins to be a pop rock sensation, despite the fact that I know they really wanted it. And I mean that you you look and listen to the Melvins and you think, oh, well, they don't care about commercial success. They're like the Andy Kaufmans of music. And I used to say the same thing until I heard more interviews and things regarding how Buzz and Dale, but especially Buzz, like really just wanted to make a career out of playing music. And they just hoped that this kind of music would lead them to like some sort of independent financial stability, which is what we all want. And it sounds nice. But I guess at the end of the day, they didn't know how to properly sell out. They didn't know how to make those songs like In Bloom, for instance. I think they are massively capable of this. But yeah, it's once again, a lot of fantasy booking. But I do love me some Melvins. And in 1993, they put out one of their best, best albums. Probably still one of the first ones you should put in people's hands if they're interested in this band at all. And that would be their Atlantic Records major label debut and their fifth overall full-length studio album called Houdini. Let's go ahead and dedicate this entry to Frank Kozik, who died earlier this year during the spring of 2023. Kozik's work, especially throughout the 90s, I saw his artwork everywhere on T-shirts, album covers like this, of course, show posters. It's endless. I even have a coffee table book with the guy's rock designs on it. So yeah, rest in peace, Mr. Kozik. Big time contribution to pop culture right there and the art world in general. Uh, But yes, Houdini, man, what an absolute killer, killer record. This is the album that made me a fan. I'm going to be dead honest. I was aware of the Melvins, but it really was the fact that hey, this band has a cover of my favorite Kiss song on their latest album. I'm going to buy it. It was as simple as that. The the Nirvana thing didn't mean shit to me because I'm not a Nirvana fan. But I'm a big fucking Kiss nerd and their version of Going Blind rules. So much so, I I really was like, I'm going to put it on the countdown entry. But I'm I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I've played it before on the show. I'll play it again. But we're talking about the Houdini record overall, so let's go with an original, of course. So, yeah, let's do the album opener right here. So you can sing along with me, Pete LaRusso, Randy Brown, and all the rest of our Melvin's Choir. This is Hooch.
right. Hooch right there by the Melvins off of Houdini. Yeah, sometimes I get so involved in what I'm thinking about, what I want to say here on the show, that sometimes I bury the lead. I'm pretty sure I failed to mention the fact that I just kind of just started doing that Kozik tribute. The reason I did, if he didn't put that together, is because he did the artwork for the album cover for Houdini. So that all being said, another thing that needs to be talked about when talking about this record Kurt Cobain has a production credit on this album, but anybody who knows anything about this record knows that that is very much just something that was put on there to give them some extra attention. Apparently, Kurt was there in the studio here and there, but he wasn't much of a producer, as you could probably figure out. Probably about as much of a producer as Joan Jett was on the Germs debut. Shots fired, but hey, that's the truth. If you want a further deep dive on this record, and I heavily recommend it, go to that Whatever Nevermind series that Copers and Fire put out a few years ago. There's a two-parter on that. Part one is my buddy Baco and my other buddy, cnjradio.com cohort, Randy Brown, geeking out over Houdini. And part two of that is a deep dive on the record with the engineer and probably, honestly, the real producer of the album, besides just the band self-producing, and that would be Garth Richardson. Great, great engineer and great producer as well. And apparently overall nice guy. The best people involved on this record. Okay. And last word on this album and the Melvins overall. If you are just getting into them, let's just say by listening to that last track and you want to dive in, there's a great chance for you right now at this moment. Really cool box set that Cherry put out on CD. It's the Atlantic Records album. So it's Houdini, Stoner Witch, and Stag. Arguably, their three best albums compiled there, I think with some bonus tracks. I'm tempted to get it myself, even though I already have these CDs, just to kind of have a really cool collection right there. But I recommend heavily that you go check that out. Those are their best albums. And if you like those albums, then shoot me a message and I'll give you some more recommendations because I'm always happy to do that, even if it takes me a few days to get back because I'm kind of the worst sometimes. Looking at this next entry right here, album number six, I'm kind of curious now whether or not this album sold more or the Melvins did. I got to think the Melvins album probably actually sold better, especially in the States, than this album did, which is kind of sad in a sense because I think this is one of the stronger albums in the band's overall discography, and they have a healthy one. And I'm talking about the late, great Motorhead. And at this point, their 11th full-length studio album called Bastards. This album is so good. I know I've talked about March or Die, and I've even written an article about March or Die before. But yes, another reason to love Bastards is this is the album that really solidifies the last lineup of Motorhead, despite the fact that Wurzel is still on here playing guitar, and that's cool. This is the first album that Mickey D plays on 100%, so that really gives credence to the last, last lineup of Motorhead right here. Big album note on here for sure. And I don't even know if this is really an official release, but I was able to score this on vinyl a few years ago. But if you see this album out and about on vinyl, it's now under the title Death or Glory. So, and I'm assuming it's an official release, like maybe for foreign markets because they didn't want to use the word bastards as the album title. But that's another way to get it. It's the same exact track listing in the same exact order. So no harm, no foul. So if you see something called Death or Glory, then that is also this record. Otherwise, it really only has like one popular song of theirs and one that was performed consistently for the most part in their live setting, which was Born to Raise Hell. More on that song next year. 
But this is a solid, solid Motorhead album. Once again, I will say it, in the upper echelon of their releases, an essential album of theirs to own. If you don't own this album, you are not a fan, much like a few others I could mention on future countdowns here. And if you're cool enough to own this, buy this, however, this is the first thing you get on it. You know you're in for a treat with this opening track right here. This is On Your Feet, On Your Knees. Turn it up. opinion honestly only a handful of rock star icons to go google classic and modern interviews alike because some people you just read you can hear their voices on the page Lemmy's one of those guys along with let's say david lee roth and tom waits uh, all interview subjects worth tracking down <laughs> so I never heard him say this out loud, but this wound up in some sort of magazine forever ago. And I don't know why this one sticks with me, because Lemmy has said some very profound things, but also some very crazy things in his lifetime. But this one kind of falls under the latter. And it was just one of those times the interviewer was like, hey, do you have any regrets in life? Anything that you never really you know, achieved or something you haven't done that you want to do at this point? And he just kind of went, um... Halle Berry, uh, Janet Jackson. <laughs> like, yeah. But that was our Lemmy. 
Yes. One of my favorite answers to any question ever asked. <laughs> and you know he meant it. He meant that shit. But yes, on your feet, on your knees. Bye, Mo to head. How did you not enjoy that? If you did not enjoy that, you do not love rock and roll. I hate to really give ultimatums here on the show, but that, that's really just how it goes with Motorhead. Speaking of Motorhead, the first time I ever saw Motorhead live was with our host here of this upcoming halftime show, my brother and partner in cnjradio.com, Chris. If you heard the previous countdowns, the ones from 73 and 83 this year, you know it's about that time. We're halfway through the episode so grab yourself a popcorn, kick back, and you're about to enjoy CreepyCatalog.com's own Chris with his top 10 movies of 1993. Take it away, Chris. Hello, and welcome to the movie segment of the top 60 albums of 1993 on Rock Strikes 10. My name is Chris, and you may know me from CNJ Radio's The Last Theater and The Wrestling House Show, or maybe you know me from the website creepycatalog.com. I'm there too. But of course, you may also know me from my previous appearances right here on Rock Strikes 10. And if you do know me from these countdown episodes, then you know that I am here to rank my personal top 10 movies for the year 1993. Now, this time I didn't have much trouble compiling a list of great movies. 1993 does not lack for fantastic films. But I did have some trouble ranking the top 10. That's where my most trouble came in. So instead of thinking about it super hard, I just went with my gut and put these movies in an order based vaguely on my memory of how much I enjoyed them upon my first time viewing it and averaging that with the number of times I've rewatched the movies over the years. That might not make sense to many people, but it makes sense to me and it's my list. So here we go. My 10th favorite movie of 1993 is Judgment Night. I'd like to think that everyone has seen Judgment Night by this point, but if not, I will tell you that it is an action thriller about a bunch of friends on a guy's night out who get stranded in the bad part of town, and they witness a murder, and then they end up having to try to survive the night while being chased by a drug kingpin and his goons. The cast is great. The friends are played by Emilio Estevez, Cuba Gooding Jr., Stephen Dorff, and Jeremy Piven, and the drug lord is played by the great Dennis Leary. And what I like about it is just that it's a really fun thriller, and I enjoy movies like this where everything takes place in a short amount of time on one night, and it's just one thing leads to another and everything kind of spins out of control. If you haven't seen Judgment Night, I highly recommend it because I think it may be the least watched movie on this list by the general public. And speaking of things that spiral out of control, that leads me to my ninth favorite movie of 1993, Falling Down. Falling Down stars Michael Douglas as a man, an everyman, who has had enough and goes on a day-long walk through Los Angeles. He goes from sitting in his car in traffic and he gets fed up, he gets out of his car and just starts walking. We do find out where his eventual goal is, but I don't want to spoil the story if you haven't seen it before. But essentially the movie is sold as an everyman who encounters a series of annoying daily occurrences, something that everybody can relate to for the most part. And these annoyances, he fights back against them and it always inevitably leads to violence in one way or another. And like I said, it is portrayed as something that's supposed to be like relatable to the general population but what I like about it is that it does deliver on that aspect of it of where it's kind of this escapism of like oh if I could do that if I could talk back to whoever or demand whatever then I totally would 
but it's not really about that because at the end of the day it's a really sad movie about a flawed man with serious problems but that said while you're on this journey with him it's still just a lot of fun now my eighth favorite movie of 1993 might surprise some people it's not surprising because this movie is on the list but it might be surprising because it's ranked at number eight this movie my eighth favorite movie of 1993 is jurassic park now don't get me wrong jurassic park is phenomenal it deserves all the praise it receives still to this day i saw it when it came out and it heightened my love of dinosaurs immensely which i still love dinosaurs today not completely thanks to jurassic park but it definitely boosted that love to a a different level for a few years after Jurassic Park came out, I really wanted to be a paleontologist when I grew up. That was either paleontology or comic book artist. Those were the two things that I was planning to do when I was still a kid. Uh, but as great as Jurassic Park is, I don't rewatch it terribly often. It's almost never my go-to when I'm looking for something to watch. While the rest of the movies on this list that I'm about to reveal that are ranked higher than Jurassic Park have been my go-tos at one point or another for at least a short amount of time, but a lot of them for a much longer amount of time. And so, my seventh favorite movie of 1993, one better than Jurassic Park, is Groundhog Day. This one grew on me over the years. I liked it when I first saw it. I did see it, I imagine, probably around the time it came out. But it was definitely later in the 90s before I really appreciated it like I do now. Bill Murray is, of course, brilliant in it, and a few of his quotes from this movie are permanent parts of my vocabulary. And also, as Joey knows, I'm a big Chris Elliott fan, and having him in a movie, any movie, automatically makes it a ton better. Like, I can't wait until Joey does the top however many albums of 1994 so I can finally talk about Cabin Boy. But that's for another one. For this one, Groundhog Day... Fantastic movie. I love it. It's number seven. But anyway, on to the next one. At number six, my sixth favorite movie of 1993 is Sam Raimi's Army of Darkness. This is easily the most quotable movie in my top ten. It's incredibly fun, as most of these movies are, and if you know me, you know that I love the Evil Dead movies. Army of Darkness is definitely the outlier in the series for me and just as a story, but it's still great. It's one of those movies where I've had to buy it multiple times and happily will buy it multiple times, not just to upgrade from VHS to DVD to Blu-ray to... I don't have a 4K yet. I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure that exists, but I don't have it yet, but I probably will because I have to buy it on each new incarnation, um, not just for the visual upgrade, but also because they put different bonus features on different releases. And if I had to pick an ending, it would be the one that is on the... Army of Darkness bootleg, like the, the DVD with the paper bag design on the cover. I believe that release is technically called the Director's Cut, and it has the alternate version, the non-theatrical other ending on that disc, and I prefer it. I'm not going to say which is which, because if you haven't seen it, it's worth just watching the Director's Cut if you can find it, because I believe it's better. It doesn't fit with the continuity of how the series went along into the television show, but I think it's great. Okay, so with this next movie, I have to start by saying, sorry, Joey. My fifth favorite movie of 1993 is True Romance. And I apologize because I know how much Joey loves this movie. 
I love it too, and it's my fifth favorite of the year, which means I love it a lot. But I have seen the next four movies on this list a lot more often than this one. Uh, I will say that Joey and his enthusiasm for true romance over the years has helped me appreciate it even more than I would have otherwise. It's another movie from this list that is forever ingrained in my brain, specifically the music, the main theme by Hans Zimmer, the love theme, I think it is. It just makes me happy when I hear it, and it brings me back to this movie, and really to the times that I was really discovering this movie, which was back around the time I met Joey. So it's this whole thing of just good feelings in my brain when I hear that music, and also the line, you're so cool. That's something that I say more often than I realize, and it's always a reference to true romance. And next, my fourth favorite movie of 1993 kind of caught me by surprise. It's Demolition Man. And even when I settled on my top 10, and it deserves to be in my top 10, obviously, I didn't think that Demolition Man would place this high. But as I thought about it more, I do think number four is where Demolition Man belongs. I loved Demolition Man from the first time I saw it, and that love has never really diminished. I was already a big fan of Sylvester Stallone and Wesley Snipes by the time it came out, and the movie just delivers everything I want in an action comedy. It's kind of difficult to pin down anything more specific than that for why it's number four above some of these other movies, but I guess more than maybe any other movie on this list, Demolition Man feels like 1993 to me, which may sound kind of silly since it takes place in the future, but that's how my mind works, and this is where Demolition Man belongs. And from the future, the fake future, we go to the fake past. My third favorite movie of 1993 is Ninja Scroll. Ninja Scroll is an anime movie about a wandering swordsman who is coerced into hunting down a group of supernaturally powered warriors known as the Eight Devils of Kimon. It's a bloody and violent and very mature themed animated movie, and it's one of the greatest anime films ever made. And I don't say that just because I love it. It's genuinely, like, across the board, I think most people who know about anime who have seen this will say, yeah, Ninja Scroll is one of the best. Now, I didn't see this in 1993. It wasn't until later in the 90s when I came across it, but it was one of the main movies, one of the main anime, anything, movie or television, that solidified my love for anime when I was a teenager, when I was really starting to get into it. And I still love Ninja Scroll just as much today. I will put it on every once in a while because I just, it's fantastic. This next movie, of course, I have also seen countless times, and my enjoyment of it only seems to increase each time I watch it. My second favorite movie of 1993 is Return of the Living Dead 3. Now, I don't think that this sequel is better than the original, but I do think that it's one of the best zombie movies in existence. And it's so different from the original Return of the Living Dead. Part 3 is its own movie entirely, which is one of the reasons why I love it so much. Return of the Living Dead 3 is a love story first, and it's a zombie movie a very close second. I mean, it is a zombie movie, but it's a love story at its heart. The movie looks amazing for a low-budget, gory zombie movie from the 90s, and it has one of the most iconic zombie designs in film, portrayed, of course, by the great Melinda Clark. Also, this is not a comedy like the other movies in the franchise. Wikipedia will tell you differently, but Wikipedia is wrong on this. This is not a zombie comedy. This is a zombie movie and there are some moments that are so absurd, and some of the zombies do look pretty funny, but it's not a comedy. 
and the movie itself plays out very seriously most of the time, and there are some really sad moments throughout it. I rewatch this frequently, and I recently finally got the Blu-ray. Vestron Video did a Blu-ray release of it a while back, and I finally got it this year. And so, yeah, this year I've watched it a few times already, and I'll probably watch it again. And that brings me to my favorite movie of 1993. And I will add a disclaimer before I tell you what it is, that this movie was technically first released in New Zealand under a different title in 1992, but it was released in the United States for the first time in 1993 by the name I'm about to mention, and that's why I'm counting it. So this is a first release in the United States in 1993, therefore my favorite movie of 1993 is Peter Jackson's Dead Alive. The first time I saw this, it was like a revelation. I had never seen anything quite like it, honestly. It's extremely goofy, and it is notoriously gory. I have Dead Alive to thank for instilling a love of extreme gore into me, although I'm sure the many slasher movies I've watched over the years has something to do with that too, but Dead Alive was different. I mean, first, it's not a slasher movie, that's not what I mean. It's a zombie movie, but it's... A different kind of zombie movie. The story moves in such a way that I remember when I was first watching it. I don't really remember my first viewing of it, but I remember kind of the sense of that. And I remember not really believing what I was seeing. But also at the same time, just strangely accepting all of these more and more absurd things that are happening as if they made perfect sense. Because they do make sense in the world that Peter Jackson created. And that's a testament to an amazing filmmaker is when he can make nonsensical things make sense to you in that moment while he pulls you into the world that he's created on the screen. Dead Alive is one of the greats of horror and really one of the greats of film in general. And with that, I will let you all get back to the music. Thank you for listening to me ramble for a few minutes about movies because I love to do it. Now, I'm already extremely confident that I know what Joey's favorite movie of 1993 is, and I won't steal his thunder. I'll let him talk about it more because I have mentioned it on this list. But I will change my question this time to instead of what is your favorite movie, I will ask Joey, what are some runners up? And also, was there anything that you thought I would have put on this list that isn't on there? Did I overlook anything? I might have because there's a lot of great movies in 1993 and I might have just missed them. But thank you, Joey, and thank you all for listening. And I'll talk to you next time. Okay, there you have it. Thank you so much for coming on the show once again, Chris. Great to hear you and your lists. And I like how he said, let's get back to the music because Chris asked me questions. We can't get back to the music right away. I've got to do my little counterpoint thing. This this isn't the State of the Union address, but I'm going to go ahead and, and do it since I was asked the question. Yes, True Romance, favorite movie of the year, hands down, if not my favorite movie of all time. I've constantly said this over the years, and I feel like it's more truth than anything else. You got Tarantino's words through the eyes of Tony Scott. It's a perfect movie. Much in the same way Chris feels about Peter Jackson, and I'm sure he would agree to this point as well, Tarantino changed my perspective on film. Uh, So that being said, I think for the first time ever that I've had Chris do these lists, we've matched half of our top ten or at least the ones that I penciled in for this list. We agreed on True Romance, Jurassic Park, Groundhog Day, Demolition Man, and Judgment Night. I'm going to do seven quick ones right here that you should absolutely check out, especially if you've never seen them or if it's been 30 years. Uh, The movie Dave, kind of the sleeper on this list, the one about the guy that Kevin Klein plays, 
where he gets cast to double the president of the United States and wackiness ensues. I won't spoil it any further than that. Kevin Klein, Sigourney Weaver, the great Frank Langella. Watch that movie. California with a K. The movie that really got me to be a Brad Pitt fan. At this point, I felt like Brad Pitt was getting shoved down our throats. But this movie here, his turn as a Charles Manson-like terrible, terrible person and absolute serial killer is great. Watch it. Sporting cast rules. Juliette Lewis, David Duchovny. Watch it. Okay. And I know Chris is a big fan of Western, so I was super surprised that Tombstone didn't make it on his list. Who doesn't know Tombstone? Who doesn't love it? Yes, watch it if you haven't. Hell's coming with me. There's a lot of just fan favorites or popcorn movies, if you want to call them just fun movies. Movies like The Fugitive, man. The Fugitive is next level. One of the greatest action movies of all time. Also got some of the better lines of all time for an action movie without being an action comedy. Harrison Ford, Tommy Lee Jones, Joey Pants. Greatness. And you want to talk about great casts? Fucking Carlito's Way, man. Dude, Carlito's Way is greatness. It, it doesn't really get talked about as much as the other Pacino gangster type films, but they should. It's a little more human. It's a little bit more of a slow burn. It's very 70s in that aspect because it actually does take place in the 70s, so that helps. But yeah, supporting cast also rules. Fucking Sean Penn playing an Alan Dershowitz type lawyer, cokehead. My freaking alternate spirit animal, Louise Guzman, is in it. And hats off, not only to Louise, but freaking Viggo Mortensen, who's a goddamn chameleon at this point in his career, plays like this gangster that's in a wheelchair. I'm fucking cocksucker! Like, oh my god, dude. Figo is amazing. Just one of the main reasons to watch that film. So yeah. But two other quick things before we actually get back to the music. I was actually about to call Chris out for putting Army of Darkness on his list. Because I played a clip of it on my 92 shows. And I thought it was officially a 92 film. No, it was officially released in 1993. It made some festival appearances at the end of 92. So that's my bad. So yeah, I am wrong and Chris is right about that one. So yeah, of course, Army of Darkness would have been on my list. And how could anybody do a 1993 film list? And I was a little hot about this, uh, Chris. I, I will admit that this wasn't on your list. And it should have been. It should be on mine. It should be on everybody's. And that would be Brain Smasher, A Love Story. Starring Andrew Dice Clay, Terry Hatcher, and a cast of many, many monks who are not ninjas. Go watch that movie. It's it's pretty damn fun. I love it. You can intend it satirically or non-satirically. It works on either level. But yes, Brain Smasher, A Love Story. The greatest love story to take place in Portland, Oregon, or Oregon, in 1993. Okay, let's actually get back to the music right here. Coming in at number five right here, a band that myself and Chris have seen live, one of our favorite bands of all time, if I could put words in his mouth as well. And that would be one of the best bands you could possibly see live at this point, right now, currently. So go see him if you've never seen him, or go see him again. The great Fishbone and their fourth full-length album here in 1993 called Give a Monkey a Brain and He'll Swear He's the Center of the Universe. I was shaming major labels earlier in this episode by not getting quicksand over and not getting the Melvins over, but absolutely shame on one of the biggest record labels of all time, Columbia slash Sony Records, for not making Fishbone into mega superstars. God damn it, really? Like, just groundbreaking hybrid style type music. 
They were on fucking Lollapalooza this year. They were a can't-miss band, and you somehow managed to fuck it up. So shame on you, Sony, for doing that. For those of you who didn't hear the album, you, you hard rock guys, you at least heard the last Action Hero soundtrack. How fucking jamming is Swim, and that's the kickoff track on this album as well. This album leans a lot in the hard rock direction, so they went hard on this one, and this one should have been a gold album for them, as well as all their other albums. Uh, let's go deep on this so you can get an idea of how great this album is. Here is Black Flowers.
Okay, there you have it. Fishbone with Black Flowers from the Monkey of Brain. And he'll swear he's the center of the universe right there. Went with something a little darker in tone and heavier in nature. That's kind of the tone of 1993 for the most part. So I went with that. But there's a couple of jokey songs on there as well on the record. So you get an overall idea of what Fishbone is still all about at the end of the day. And this is a band, clearly, if you've been paying attention the last few years, that I would definitely follow into the sun. One last thing before we get to album number four right here. Shaming major labels for not getting certain artists over. But also, fuck some of these critics, man. I'm looking over the little wiki window here. That I never really go with uh, who's rating what and, and whatever, but I gotta bring this up. Critics hated this album. I'll look over Entertainment Weekly, because Entertainment Weekly was always super nice to most bands for the sake of getting the articles and getting the interviews. So their niceness is definitely suspect. Although they have the best review of the whole wiki window, which is giving the album a B plus. Okay, fine. Good for you. Golf clap. Uh, fucking Rolling Stone giving it two stars. That's expected because they're not fun. All music giving it two stars. You're supposed to be an authority. Fuck you. And fuck that Robert Criscow guy. Cause I know he's been around for a hundred years and he's supposed to be respectable. Fuck you. Giving it a bomb. Fuck you. I'm holding my middle fingers. Can you hear these? Okay. While we're giving out double birds and fuck you awards to the industry, let's talk about the band and album here at number four because it definitely ties in. Sadly, a band that should have been running things. Should have been the band of the 90s. Talk to any fan of this band, they'll tell you the same. I'll tell you the exact same thing. This album sold even less than their first album, which didn't do blow away business. And the second one being probably one of the greatest stiffs in the history of the industry, sales wise. 
creatively it is a masterpiece and do i ever say that no it's it's a damn masterpiece uh, but joey why is it number four if it's a damn near masterpiece well i would say that about all the other three albums on this list as well also that thing about well i don't have as much nostalgia for this one as i do the other albums on this list in a sense because this is the one i came to the latest because at the time that it came out i didn't even know it existed so it took years for me to figure out that this album existed I just thought that this band broke up after their first album and never put anything else out. That's how well their label and management did their job. So yes, the sophomore release and final album by Jellyfish comes in at number four. The album Spilt Milk. It is something else. I almost feel bad just playing a song off of this record to represent it because it really is just one of those great top to bottom records. And somewhere, somebody out there that's even listening to this show has never heard this album. And I'm not mad at you. I'm sad for you. <laughs> I guess that's a way of putting it. But yeah, immediately just go listen to this album as soon as you can because it is great. So if this song don't convince you, then you're probably on the wrong trip here. So to represent Spilt Milk, this is Jellyfish with The Ghost at number one. Enjoy.
this would probably be a good time to say that I really, especially after hearing that song again, I could listen to that song over and over again. And man, really does check off all the boxes for like all time favorite bands, like like a big star, or cheap trick, and it, probably about seventy thirty Beach Boys to Beatles right there. I mean, it's it's all great. Jellyfish right there with the Ghost of Number One from Spilt Milk. But getting back to what I was trying to say at the beginning of this segment here, it's probably be a good time to say I really. I feel like an asshole putting that record in number four. So let's just say the top four is all tied for first. Just to satisfy my brain, you put them in any order you want. Deal? Okay. So yes, that all being said, coming in at number three, this album is definitely one that I bought on day one, and it's the best album of 93 that I bought on day one. So yeah, there's a little mini award for it right here. As a nice little consolation prize for not putting it exactly at number one. I'm sure this album would make number one for a lot of people that are listening to this show right now. And yeah, of course, you know I'm a fan. I'm an ally. Don't kill me for not putting this at number one. But this album right here, Sound of White Noise by Anthrax. A big record for Anthrax. Their sixth full-length studio album. And of course, most famously, their first album with John Bush. The great John Bush replacing Joey Belladonna at this point. Love the John Bush era. Love Joey. Love them both for sure. I do not get into tribalism with this. I refuse to. They're both awesome. They're both the man. But yeah, Sound of White Noise still sounds great all these years. 30 years later. Oh my God, 30 years. That's so dumb. But yeah, I wore this cassette out to the point where like the writing on the cassette faded for the most part. Yeah, that's how much I listened to it. Walkman heat. It was a real thing. But yeah, I was really impressed at how they handled, number one, replacing Joey, but also not totally sounding like a complete sellout record. Like, there's still a lot of thrash leanings on here. They're definitely not playing nearly as complicated stuff, but it's still heavy. It's still got a lot of crunch to it. So it sounds like an album that makes sense in 1993. It definitely did at the time. I'm sure some people were down on the fact that they weren't playing super duper mucho thrash anymore. But like I said, for a quote unquote attempt to sell out record, I think they did a great job. If you stack it up against Metallica and Megadeth's quote unquote sellout records, I think this is the best of the three with Black Album running a close-ish second. So yeah, and even though this represents the beginning of one era for them, it's also the last album to feature Dan Spitz on there. him, Him departing definitely gave me a sense that something was changing almost even more so than joey if that makes any kind of sense i always saw this band as like a 50 50 twin guitar attack kind of band and ever since dan left it hasn't really been like that as much as i still love the band you know me i'm a big fan we're going to talk about anthrax on the next countdown as well you can be sure of that for sure but yes let's get into this album right here i played a good amount of songs off of this All the outtakes and B-sides are great. Poison My Eyes. I should have played that on odds and ends. You just can't play them all. I think I played Sodium Pentothal when I did the Anthrax Rock and Rank special. That sounds about right. How do you not play only? James Hetfield's right. It's a perfect song. Room for One More. Still one of my favorites on the album. I'm going to go with this one right here just because I'm feeling it today. So, from Sound of White Noise, this is the great and mighty Anthrax with Invisible. Oh, 
Yo, yes. Man, I'm glad I played that song. Wasn't that great? Heavy ass shit right there by Anthrax. The opening track, if you had the cassette, it was the opening track on side two, in case you didn't know that. If you're a CD person through and through, I was a CD person through and through starting uh, probably around 94, let's say. So it would probably take me another five years to get this on CD. I didn't quite replace all my cassettes to CDs at that point. It took a while. But yes, Sound of White Noise, Anthrax, Greatness, one of 93's best. Coming at number two, I did not buy this album on day one. It probably took me about a year and a half to two years before I bought it. And I've talked about this band a lot. Speaking of the Whatever Nevermind podcast via Cobras and Fire. I mentioned that earlier in this episode. There is an episode dealing with this album that I guessed it on. So I'm a big fan of this album, to be sure. And that would be the second full-length album by the Smashing Pumpkins, their breakout album, Siamese Dream. I saw you over there rolling your eyes. Don't do that. This is a great rock and roll album. The thing that I've always leaned on as a Pumpkins fan is... It's a lot of fun playing these songs on the guitar. If I could get personal, this is a really, really big guitar band for me. Billy is a massively underappreciated riffmeister for a guy who knelt at the throne of Iomi and Van Halen and people like that. And even a guy who appreciates people like Michael Schenker and George Lynch. Billy is a true student, and I think he put together some of the best guitar music of the 90s and beyond. Siamese Dream is one of his achievements of many. So if you've never given this album a proper chance, you really, really, really should. I know you've heard all the singles ad nauseum. I know you've heard today a lot. I know you've heard Disarm a lot. But you got to get into this record. It is not what you would expect it to be. I was the same goddamn way. I was still absolutely resisting these bands on principle because I hated the fact that these bands were getting the look and my favorites are being pushed aside. But Smashing Pumpkins are great. They are one of us. And for all the misgivings I've given about some of the birth of the popularity of quote-unquote grunge music and college music, it's all worth it to get a band like this, in my opinion. So yes, I'm always going to love this album, Siamese Dream by the Smashing Pumpkins. I was even thinking about trying to appeal to you on the heavy level, maybe playing Geek USA, Rocket, something like that, or even Soma, which is a great slow burn. But this is my favorite song on the album. It's one of my favorite songs of all time. Once again, if you go listen to the Whatever Nevermind episode, I can expound upon this a lot more. I'm a little bit of a fan of this song. You get a nice little bonus cut if you go listen to that episode. So I got to play this song on principle. It's one of my favorites. And also not only holds the award for being one of my favorite, favorite songs of all time, it also holds the all-time award for best song with the worst song title. So here is Smashing Pumpkins with Mayonnaise.
That right there to me is a perfect song. Musically, lyrically, that's everything I would ever want to say if I was going to write a song. And it's in that right there. Mayonnaise by the Smashing Pumpkins from Siamese Dream. To this day, when that song kicks in, I could just close my eyes, put my head down, and I feel that immediate endorphin release, that chill that we constantly search for as music fans. And just as people in general, that's what that is for me. That's why it's number two on my list. It should be number one, right? I know, right? But let's just say coming in at number one here is an album that I damn sure did not buy. The day it came out, even the year it came out, or even the decade it came out. I probably would not own this album for another 10 years after its release. But somehow it's managed to always stay near the top of my all-time albums list. And it comes in here at number one on my official best albums of 1993 list. Almost kind of on the Tarantino principle where it opened me up to a whole big catalog and family tree of amazing rock music is this band right here, the Wild Hearts, led by the great Ginger Wildheart. Got Steedy here on the drums, Danny on the bass, of course the great CJ on other guitar and, and vocals as well. It's a perfect combination for this album right here. The album is called Earth vs. the Wild Hearts. Crazy to think, i almost positive this is the only Wild Hearts album to get any kind of United States distribution as a whole through East-West Records. And in my memory, the only band I could think of that was a prominent act on East-West that was a rock band was Pantera. So this is the final word of 1993. The overall vibe here of the top 10 is really just shame on the music industry and shame on the major labels. The reason why podcasts exist are because of bands like this and some of the other ones I've played on this top 10. And yes, Wild Hearts. And yes, Earth vs. the Wild Hearts is here at the top of the list. And not that it didn't score 100 points, because it did, and a lot of these other albums did as well. But I did want to put them here at the top of the list, like I said, on a certain principle, if anything, to get some more ears on this freaking band, because they are one of the greatest rock bands of all time. They definitely saved a lot about rock and roll music for me in the 21st century. But they started here in 1993 with their first album. And I know that I've always identified if I had to identify if I had to pick a side if I had to pick a tribe it would be like that hard rock leaning into heavy metal kind of thing but this album definitely proved and exposed that I love a lot of punk rock music as well and I don't know if there's any other album that I could point to for anybody that is an exact equal perfect amount of punk rock music and heavy metal music on one album this is a perfect album for that reason it is 50-50, right down the line. At the same time, it gives you this classic feel that these are anthems, and these are songs that should have been hits. These are songs you should be hearing on your radio stations because they're that good, and the band is that good. Not that you're going to get played on radio with a song like this, but of course, there are other songs on this album that are radio-friendly. I just wanted to play this song because it's probably my favorite overall song on the album, and it's just a hell of a closer, man. I don't know how this isn't the album closer, but let's close up my show here tonight and closing off this countdown. So from Earth versus the Wild Hearts, here is said band with My Baby is a Head Fuck. See, mister, you got the best answer machine message I ever heard. Drags me around all day, just like a ball on a chain, a tooth pain that I confess. 
closing off the show here today and closing off the top 60 albums of 1993. Coming at number one here, The Wild Hearts with My Baby is a Head Fuck from their debut album. Debut. Right out of the gate right there. Isn't that great? Earth versus The Wild Hearts. Also on a heavy, heavy ass principle, the other reason to play that song and to spotlight it, it contains the last ever recorded guitar solo by the producer of the album, which happens to be Mick Ronson from the Spiders from Mars. And after this, we'll say rest in peace, Mr. Ronson. You are missed for sure. So there you go. Hope you enjoyed these episodes. Hope you enjoyed the entirety of the super spectacular retrospective of the year 1993. Good God, the way it's going, the way I got somehow behind once again this year. I feel like the next episode, we're probably just going to be kicking off 2003. Why not, right? Because I do have two Christmas episodes to do before we get to Christmas. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how I'm going to do this. I may have to split out the odds and ends and the albums this year for purposes of Christmas. We'll just see what happens. Do you care? As long as you're listening, you don't mind, right? A little Christmas break between uh, retrospective. Okay, we'll figure it out. Anyway, get back to me. We'll do lunch. All right, separate checks, please. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to these episodes. Thanks to the special guest, Chris, my brother over there. Thanks to all of you. Thanks to anybody who takes the time to listen. Especially thanks to those who share it and recommend it online. You are key. And so, as I leave 1993 and move on to a different year, while staying in the present somehow, till the next episode, stay tuned for my better half, Nola, with the plugs, followed by the best damn outro song in all the podcasting business. Take it away, Nola. We would like to thank you for taking the time to listen to the show today. You can reach us on Facebook or Twitter. We love getting messages and always do our best to respond. Every time you share our show, we give our cats Ruby and Ripley a treat. We are on Twitter at RockStrikes10 and the direct email is RockStrikes10 at gmail.com. When you search for us, the number 10 is always spelled out. If you would like to support our show financially, we do have Rock Strikes 10 shirts for sale. For $20, we will ship you out a high-quality, soft-as-heck, next-level branded shirt and a button. Send us an email or direct message for more details or to order. Please help us spread the word about this show and all of our other quality shows by listening, liking, subscribing, and sharing. Our official website is cnjradio.com. You can visit this site for all episodes of Rock Strikes 10 going all the way back to episode number one. While you're on cnjradio.com, check out some of these other quality shows. The Wrestling House Show, a pro wrestling podcast unlike any other. The Synaptic Empire Audio Transmissions, hosted by Randy Brown, a true alternative. The Last Theater, starring Chris where cinema's trash is treated like treasure. And the I Am Vinyl podcast with Pete LaRussa and occasionally Joey. We also highly recommend that you check out our good friend Mark Striegel, who can now be heard exclusively on Sirius XM as part of Ozzy's Boneyard and Hair Nation. Last, but certainly not least, we would like to give an extra special thanks to the great Pete LaRussa and the band Spacebeard for the best outro song in the business. Go to facebook.com slash spacebeardband to purchase their music and make sure to tell them that Rock Strikes 10 sent ya. We hope you tune into the next show. Until then, have fun.
post-game show is brought to you by... Christ, I can't find it. The hell with it.